In 2019, Google conducted an internal study to find out what makes an effective team. They called the study Project Aristotle, after the renowned ancient Greek philosopher who greatly influenced the world of philosophy, science, and logic. The study uncovered the five elements that make a great team. Welcome to episode 167 of The Shit Works, a podcast dedicated to all things networking, relationship building, and business development. I'm your host, Julie Brown speaker, author, and networking coach. And today, I am joined by author, speaker, and consultant, Mark Graben, whose latest book, The Mistakes That Make Us, Cultivating a Culture of Learning and Innovation, delves deep into the most important element uncovered in that study. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success. With your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. So, what is that number one element? Well, why don't I give you all five of them and then you can see how important number one really is and you may be surprised by it. Coming in at number five was impact. Number four is meaning. Number three is structure and clarity. Number two is dependability. And the number one element is psychological safety, meaning team members feel safe enough to take interpersonal risks. When teams promote psychological safety, there is a free flow of ideas, which can lead to better outcomes. You can ask for help without fear of retribution or adverse impact to your reputation. Team members feel comfortable asking questions and sharing opinions, which can lead to healthy debate, and that helps teams thrive. When we are psychologically safe, we aren't afraid to ask questions or make mistakes because we know those two things are what drive change and innovation. And there's no better person to walk us through how we can create psychological safety within our teams and in our offices than Mark. So Mark, welcome to the podcast. Julie, thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. This subject of psychological safety might be new to a lot of people who aren't, you know, studying teams and companies the way we do. So how do you start researching it and writing about it? Well, um, I mean, I first started learning about it. I mean, I went and well, maybe first, first, I've lived through workplaces that had low levels of psychological safety or where at least I did not feel psychologically safe to use my voice and to speak up. And I've been part of teams where thankfully I, I did have that feeling of psychological safety. Um, so I think some of my learning journey really started with, um, you know, the work of people that that I cite in, in my book and otherwise. Um, Amy Edmondson, professor from Harvard Business School, um, didn't invent the term psychological safety, but arguably she really popularized it in a broader business sense. Um, one of her books, is, uh, is called The Fearless Organization, which I highly mm -hmm. recommend. And then uh, another researcher and author, uh, Timothy Clark, um, author of a great book called The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. I had a chance to do some formal training and certification uh, through Tim and his organization. So, you know, in the context of my book, like you said, in, in, in your summary of this, one of the things people, we one of the things, areas we hope people would feel safe to speak up about is mistakes, admitting their own mistakes, talking about the risk of mistakes not yet made. And, and if they 
don't feel safe individually in a particular situation to speak up, we're going to have more mistakes and, and that's going to be bad for the people involved and the organization or company. So you just made a good point there. We would hope knowing that we learn from our mistakes and that we need to raise red flags when we see that something might be amiss. We would hope that that's the culture we have in our companies. But we also have grown up in a very much a, you know, fake it till you make it, don't admit you're wrong, you know, kind of culture. And that's at odds with creating safe spaces within our companies. So how, in your opinion, in your professional opinion, in your expert opinion, where do companies start to begin creating this psychological safety, this space within companies that says, no, in this company, we we make mistakes and we ask questions and it will not affect you and no one will think you're dumb. You know, how do we begin creating that environment? Yeah. Leaders, thankfully, can take actions to create or cultivate or build or nurture the environment in which people can decide, yes, it's safe or safe enough for me to speak up. So I kind of I'll check myself on using the word hope, like in an organization, hope is not a culture building strategy as an outside observer of people in their workplace. I would say I hope you are fortunate enough to work in a team and with the leader and with colleagues where you do feel safe. So in a team, in an organization, leaders can absolutely take action to create the conditions for psychological safety. So first off, we talk about shit that doesn't work. <laughs> the, shit, the shit that does is, this is a safe space. Hmm. I want you to feel safe. I'm like, okay, well, that might be aspirational. It absolutely might not be true. Right. right. So don't lecture people around like, well, you should feel safe or, you know, to couch it in terms of, you know, being courageous or 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 high character of like, well, good yeah. people speak up and you should speak up. The two things leaders can do, the shit that works is first off, and, and I'll cite Tim Clark for for stating it this way, modeling the behaviors you want to yes. see when leaders are willing to go first and admit. I was wrong. I made a mistake. I could, I have an idea and I could be wrong. So let's yeah. go test that idea. That works. Then secondly, when others follow your lead, you have to reward those behaviors, not just tolerate, but more yeah. actively and more positively reward people for speaking up. I love that you said that the shit that doesn't work is saying this is a safe space because that's a platitude, you know, like that right. is right. Like saying this is a safe space doesn't make it so. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And I mean, and you can go and, and survey teams qualitatively and quantitatively, and you may have a team of, let's say, seven people where they all feel a high degree of psychological safety. So you might say, OK, well, that team has this generally high sense of psychological safety. You add an eighth person to that team. And I've seen this happen in a tech company, a software company I'm involved in, Kinexus. You hire somebody in who has experience at other companies where it was not psychologically safe. Yeah. And they learned all of these unfortunate lessons around protecting themselves and not speaking up. You, you can't tell them to flip a light switch and say, well, this is safe. You should instantly start behaving differently. Right. 
Now that eighth person, that new person to the team may come around to seeing in that environment based on how people are behaving. Okay, I, I I'm gonna try. I'm gonna start speaking up. And yeah. when that's rewarded, they can come around, but it's not. It's not like flipping a switch. When you say reward the action, what does that look like? I can start off first off by giving a sincere thank you. You know, thank you for bringing that to our attention Mm -hmm. and then taking steps that are constructive. You know, I mean, and, and look, you know, when, when people make a mistake, they, they, they feel bad about it. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't have to pile on or chastise them or, 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 you know, um, yell at them. Um, You know, sometimes it's actually quite the opposite. You've got to check and say, let's say if you had admitted a mistake, you know, the check in, Julie, how, how are you doing? Mm Mm-hmm. Are you feeling okay? Like it might not be the appropriate time to dig into uh, analysis and understand. Like, yeah, sometimes you have to let somebody recover a little bit and 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 yeah. reassure them. I know you didn't mean to do that, you know. And then when the timing is right, hopefully sooner than later. But but when the people involved feel ready for it, then you say problem solving. Well, why did that mistake occur? What do we learn from it? What can we put in place? systemically to prevent a repeat of the mistake. And, you know, pro tip here, um, what doesn't work is telling people, well, hey, be more careful next time. (laughs) You can try that, but yeah, doesn't work. So, so I think, you know, a little bit of kindness, a little bit of empathy, a lot of constructive follow-up on the mistake where Mm -hmm. we, we can replace punishment with learning and growth. And I, I hear people sometimes say things like, well, we, we have to punish people for making mistakes. I'm like, we don't have to. That's a choice. Yeah. We can choose a different path. And companies that are choosing that different path find more innovation, more improvement, more success. Yeah. I think I read an article that you had written and in it, you, and I'm going to paraphrase here because you know, I'm trying to put a whole article into mm-hmm. this one question. You said a lot of leaders are frustrated with employees not being engaged or not submitting ideas. And that this is because most companies have two key cultural factors that keep employees from speaking up. And those two key cultural factors are fear and futility. What do you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, well, you know, for one, I would say stop blaming employees for quote unquote being disengaged. Like, you mm-hmm. know, engage is an active verb. You need to engage your employees actively mm-hmm. for them to be engaged, for them to, 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 to even have a chance of speaking up and, and using their voice. Um, I'll, I'll credit, like, you know, I'm not the PhD researcher, but I like connecting dots. So I'm going to credit another professor, uh, Ethan Burris from the University of Texas at Austin in the business school there. This is his research where he surveyed people very broadly around what are the top two reasons people choose to not use their voice. The second highest ranking, if we're playing family feud here, number two on the board is fear. Yeah, fear. Let me see fear. Well, I don't want to see fear, but okay, it's up there. Bing, 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 bing. Number two on the board, fear. Surprising to me. And I'd always always been aware of the fear factor and trying to help reduce that or not wanting to work in an environment with the fear factor. Number one on the board is actually a different F word, futility. So it's if we've eliminated the fear factor, we can do things to build psychological safety. That's like the first PS. 
But then if people speak up about mistakes or problems or ideas and nothing happens, people yeah. will then say things like, yeah, I, I don't get in trouble for speaking up. It's just not worth the effort. It's not worth I it. speak up and nothing happens. So they stop. That's the yeah. futility factor. And that's where I, the thing I've, I've pieced together, you know, these two PSs, not just psychological safety, but also effective problem solving. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a lot of organizations that, will train people to the ends of the earth on problem solving and then mm -hmm. ask, well, why aren't people using those problem solving tools that we taught them? It's probably a lack of psychological safety. Do you know in your research if if there's a gender difference in psychological mm -hmm. safety? Is one gender more apt to not ask questions, not feel psychologically safe in a work environment? Or is it pretty much equal across the board. I I don't have data. I, I'd be really curious like what a broad mm. range of survey data would say about that. I, I think, I mean, one, one dynamic and something I've talked with others about and they've brought up as an issue. I mean, look, you know, I'm I, 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 in a workplace or even here, I come from a place with a, you know, or a lot of privilege. I'm a middle-aged straight white guy, like I have no, you know, I'm, 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 you know, you know, in, in some ways, maybe um, because of some of that privilege, like, well, maybe I don't get punished as much, but the one thing I've, I've like, especially talked to some black colleagues about is the, the thing they fear that I don't have to think about is, you know, if, if let's say a black woman, a friend of mine, a colleague, that fear of, well, if I admit a mistake, that's going to reflect badly on my other black colleagues right. or on other women. Right. And I mean, I think there's a really interesting perspective to think about there. We, we would want everyone, hopefully, to feel the same level of psychological safety right. so that they can just as actively and equally participate in workplace discussions and, yeah. and you know, uh, but I mean, I, I think those are things, you know, if we're in a, a diverse team, we, we can't assume for a whole bunch of reasons that, that everyone feels the same sense of psychological safety that, that right. I might feel. Or yeah. what, what do you, what do you think? Well, you know, as I was coming up with the question, which just happened right now, I was thinking, um, originally, when I asked the question, I was like, women would definitely not want to be seen. We've already had to work so we're not even equal in where we are in leadership and board positions and pay. So why would we admit mistakes? Because like we're already still not equal um, on so many levels. But then I flipped it around and I said, for men, there's this you always got to be right. You got to be the big guy, you know, like kind mm -hmm. of persona in companies mm -hmm. as well that would make it really difficult for them to say, hey, I fucked up. So I don't yeah. I, I think it's an interesting question or I'd love to see if there was research on it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important. I just, you know, the listeners of this podcast know I just wrote a, a new keynote keynote on employee um, retention and happiness. And, you know, as we face, you know, declining birth rate since 1970, millennials have the lowest birth rate of any generation ever. As we get to the point where it's, it, we're already there where it's really hard to hire, but it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get harder. And we as Americans aren't making enough people to like fill the workforce. We're just not. 
And yeah. we are going to have to rely on, you know, people coming into the United States as immigrants to fill out the workforce. And it's going to be really, really important that we create safe environments for them to come and bring their cultures and learn. Um, you know, there's going to be some sort of language barriers, English as second languages. It's going to be really hard communication wise. So I think it would, it's, it is so important that companies start figuring out this problem of psychological safety. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and pointing back to um, Tim Clark's four stages framework. One thing mm -hmm. I really love about that framework is, you know, we can kind of break down and look at stages. Psychological safety is not a yes, no, you know, zero one. Uh, we have psychological safety. There are degrees of this feeling, how safe, does an individual feel? But these four stages to run through them real quick. Stage one, the foundation is inclusion safety. Yeah. Yep. Do you feel included, accepted, and respected? Without that, it's hard to do much else. Right. Stage two is learner safety. Do I feel safe to learn? Do I feel safe to ask questions? Do I feel safe to say, I don't know? The, the inability to say that in healthcare leads to a lot of mistakes because yes. people feel ashamed or get shamed yep. for asking the question. So then they go and do their best and then a mistake the wrong, you know, occurs. Yep. Um, stage three is contributor safety. Do you feel safe to contribute to the best of your uh, ability? And then stage four, really the pinnacle that we're aiming for is uh, challenger safety. Like, do I feel safe to challenge the status quo yep. in different ways. Yeah. So um, in, in different ways, yes, to start with uh, in, inclusion, uh, acceptance and respect. And, you know, it, it, with these pressures around hiring and retention, that it's really, it's a key to retention. When people are working in this highly engaged environment where they feel psychologically safe, those people are going to want to stay and they're yeah. going to be able to thrive. Yeah. And they're going to recruit. I mean, we know that, most hiring comes from networking. So you're making your employees feel like this is the company to work at and they're going to help you recruit and fill out your workforce for sure. Yes. So your book, The Mistakes That Make Us, it it came out of your podcast. You have a podcast called My Favorite Mistake, mm -hmm. which delves into game-changing mistakes made by industry leaders, like big name people and the mistakes they made. Yeah. What was one of your favorite mistakes that you heard a guest share? There's, I mean, there's so many great stories and, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, there, what do we learn from hearing these stories? So, mm -hmm. you know, one, you, you might hear um, somebody admit a mistake and say, oh, okay, that applies to me and my work. I, I know now to not make that mistake. Like yeah. those opportunities are maybe fairly rare, but I think, What's more powerful is just the example that's set. You know, mm -hmm. company founders, CEOs, leaders, entertainers, retired pro athletes, uh, comedians. Um, but, but to answer your question, I think, you know, two people come to mind, uh, members of uh, U.S. House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. Episode two, uh, Will Hurd, Republican from Texas, who was in uh, he had already decided at that point he wasn't running for re-election, so he had a couple months to go. And then a couple of months back, um, uh, Adam Smith, the Democrat from Washington, and you know they both commented about, yeah, I think it is kind of unusual. You know, if a politician admits a mistake, they get they get yeah. hit with all kinds of attacks and labels. You're a flip flopper. Yeah. Uh -huh. 
yeah. what have you. But they both told stories from their first ever election. Um, Will Hurd's story, like in particular, he was running in the Republican primary in 2010. He got the most votes in the primary, but he didn't get 50%. So it um, went to a runoff. Yeah. And he owned up to and he admitted that he did not listen to the advice of his political consultants. He didn't blame them for not yeah. being convincing or something. He continued the same strategy. He didn't treat the runoff as uh, being different and he lost. Yeah. And you know, the fact that he could admit that. And then this one line is burned into my memory. I mean, we think about mistakes and we discover them in hindsight. He said, well, if I'd known it was a mistake, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> <laughs> True. You know, I always um, say you can't learn from your mistakes if you don't make any. <laughs> that's so. that's true too. A lot of entrepreneurs talk about that. If you know, if you're never making mistakes, you're probably not pushing the boundaries of entrepreneurship or innovation. But yeah. at, you know, at the same time, um, we we don't we don't want huge catastrophic failures. So I think the best stories come from making a mistake at a small scale, like as an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. and then learning and adjusting and using small mistakes to prevent big failures. Will yeah. heard, let's say, if he had gotten polling data before that final runoff election. And maybe you know, he could have discovered before it actually went to the voters. Yeah. Maybe he could have made adjustments. Now, um, to his credit, he ran again four years later, found himself in that exact same situation. And this time he listened. Mm -hmm. And that time, that time he won. So I love stories like that from the podcast and into the book. There's sort of the, the redemption story of celebrating the learning and the growth and the development that comes from making mistakes. And, and, and I think the people on the podcast remind us, look, you know, we all, we all make mistakes. So yeah. let's, let's learn and grow. Did anybody ever come? I'm really curious if anybody ever came on and was like, this mistake was a shit sandwich and like nothing good came out of it. It was mm. just a mistake. <laughs> Well, yes, it, that that's funny. I mean, um, usually, you know, I mean, you know, we do a pre-call and, and and people have a chance to reflect. Usually people are telling stories that happened long enough ago. They've had time to kind of figure out what yeah. the lesson or the yeah. moral of the story is. Um, I mean, you know, it, it may be at a minimum, the positive is like, well, I learned not to make that exact mistake. Again. Yeah. You know, but there are so many people who have come on the show and talked about, their first attempt at a business failed, went out of business, went bankrupt. They learned from that and succeeded the second time, yeah. either in version two of that same type of business or in a different business. Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, um, it, people people find a way, like I, I think pretty authentically to say, yeah, there, there, there were positives. It was painful at the moment, but it became positive. Yeah. We, so we have this rule. I mean, you're a professional speaker as well. And I don't know if you've heard this rule, but we have this rule in professional speaking where you never tell a story you're still going through. Like <laughs> You never tell a story until you are completely on the other side of it because you just can't. Number one, you'll be too emotional about it. You won't have all of the lessons learned. It's not a good story if you're in the middle of it. So mm, yeah, yeah. But it's yeah, probably I, the same I, with I, mistakes. <laughs> Well, and I, the other thing I've learned is you don't want to ever surprise somebody with that question. And, you know, there were a couple of times early on where, um, you know, let's say the, the guest was being booked through a third party, like a PR firm yeah. and communication didn't really get back to the guest for whatever reason. And they didn't know, they thought they were just going to show up and answer the same five questions yeah. that they like to answer. Like, mm -hmm. where's the fun in that? So you've got to give people some time. <laughs> to think about and reflect because yeah. deciding what's a favorite 
you know, that's very subjective and people do need some time to like, it's not something you can come up with off the top of your head, probably. Yeah. So in my research of you, because everybody knows I research every guest ad nauseum, <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you're also a lean expert. You work in healthcare a lot with with um as a lean expert, but you have a podcast called Lean Whiskey. Yeah. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a huge bourbon, whiskey, rye uh -huh. fanatic. Um, so completely off topic, uh -huh. I would love to just ask you what your favorite whiskey, rye, bourbon, scotch, mm. whatever mm. it is. What is your favorite one? Um, I have a favorite one as well. I actually have two favorites, but. Well, I, I see. I don't I don't know if I would if I had done more research on you and your background, Julie, if I could have found this out. So I'm glad you shared that with me. <laughs> yeah. So Lean Whiskey is a podcast. In fact, I'm going to record an episode uh, this afternoon with my usual co-host, Jamie Flinchbaugh. We both do work around this, quote unquote, lean management philosophy. And in the Lean Whiskey podcast, we kind of combine conversation on both. So it's hard to answer your question, though, because. Like there are some people and, 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 you know, Hey, drink what you like. There are some people who say that's my favorite. And that's what I all, that's what I yeah. like to drink. And like, I like trying new whiskeys. I have certain go-tos I'll go back to, but like, depending on the mood, I'll drink bourbon or rye or scotch. Japanese whiskey mm -hmm. is a category that I really love. Um, there are some Irish whiskeys that um, I really like and really enjoy. So, um, boy, how to answer that question of a favorite. <laughs> well, let me, let me, let me, maybe you, you can ask a tough follow-up question if I'm weaseling out of it here, because, you know, look, it's your show. So it's not <laughs> off topic. You asked, but there are two distilleries that are mentioned uh, and featured in the book, The Mistakes oh, really? That Make Us. One is a Texas distillery called Garrison Brothers that has um, a, a, a great culture of, um, owning up to and learning from mistakes. And, and that story is told in the book. And I do love uh, their bourbons. Um, and to some people that sounds like a mistake, but actually, no, you can make bourbon outside of Kentucky. That's mm. legally- <laughs> you call it bourbon? You can. It, that, you can. That is it's a, the mash makeup, right? Well, there there are a number of criteria, mm. but and, and it's a, 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 a US federal national designation. So you yeah. could- follow all of the same rules and make a corn whiskey in another country, but you might have to label it grain whiskey. Yeah. And who wants to drink that? That doesn't you couldn't sound good. drink. You couldn't call it bourbon. Yeah. Um, so Garrison brothers and then, and they've been around for about 15 years and they've won a lot of awards. And then there's a friend of mine who's a former Toyota guy. So here's the overlap of this lean manufacturing, lean management approach. Um, he worked for Toyota a long time. He went and traveled the world as a consultant. He got tired of that. He has a startup bourbon distillery. And mm -hmm. by startup, like they've, you know, they're, they've been going, I think seven or eight years, Glens Creek distilling, where he's brought that Toyota mindset about learning from mistakes okay. into his distillery. It's very small scale production, but yeah. he's starting to win some awards and he's bringing that kind of problem solving mindset from yeah. Toyota. And I think very intuitively, you know, he's got a small team, but I mean, you know, it, it's it's definitely he's the type of leader that would not uh, react badly, mm -hmm. punitively to a mistake. And and he'll admit his own mistakes. So there's that right. leadership 
behavior and pattern. That's really good. This is so great. I'm so glad you came. Mark's new book, The Mistakes That Make Us, Cultivating a Culture of Learning and Innovation, can be found on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Any place else that it can be found? Um, It can be found on Apple Books. Uh, It's available, um, you know, print editions, eBooks, audiobook is available through Audible, Amazon, and Apple. Oh, perfect. And then for information about you, about your speaking and your coaching, they can just go to markgraben.com, right? They can go there or they can go to mistakesbook.com. If if people want to order a signed copy or if they want to do a bulk order for their team, they can do that. Um, And they they can actually, they can also download a free preview of the book at at mistakesbook.com. And a lot of people on who listen to this podcast, because I grew up in the architecture, engineering and construction industry, which is a very lean heavy uh-huh. industry check out lean whiskey after the you know listen to this podcast first and then check out lean whiskey <laughs> keep listening to julie's podcast and um yeah lean whiskey and you'll appreciate this julie as a whiskey fan of all types people can either go they can go to leanwhiskey.com whether they spell whiskey k-e-y or k-y Just, i spell it e-y i always yeah. default to e-y yeah all right that's well, the, that's the american spelling for oh, sure oh is it generally um, yeah yeah Thanks so much for being here. This was great. Yeah, thank you, Julie. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and for your questions. And this has been a lot of fun. So thanks. Hey, so I had a little bit of a connection issue during this recording, um, which I'm sure you might have noticed. And I'm sorry, of all the things I can control, the fickleness of my internet connection is not one of them I could could control on this particular day. One thing that might have dropped out in the recording was when Mark was talking about, uh, he said, the shit that doesn't work is saying this is a safe space. And that's because someone else saying it doesn't make it so. You know, the only person who can determine if they feel safe is that person. So I, I think we should try to not say those words because it it doesn't make it so. Also something that Mark mentioned was that in order to start creating psychologically safe places, it has to start from the top. You know, if your company's leadership and C-suite are not on board with what it takes to create work environments where we are allowed to make mistakes, where we are allowed to challenge the status quo, where we are allowed to have healthy and respectful debates, then it just won't happen. We also need to realize that psychological safety is not a yes or a no. There are degrees to it, and it takes time to build up to feeling safe. Sadly, I think we all know what it's like to work in an environment where we aren't comfortable asking questions, where we aren't comfortable making mistakes, voicing opinions. But like I mentioned in the interview, you know, if companies expect to retain workers, especially now when the average tenure at a company is just shy of three years, then we need to build environments where employees thrive and they don't want to leave. Okay. Oh, okay, I'm super excited. So onto the drink of the week, which I had to feature a bourbon cocktail because of mine and Mark's mutual love of this stuff. And I do love this cocktail and I've had it multiple times, but up until featuring it on the podcast, I'd actually never really done any research into it so I didn't know where it was created so okay the drink is called the paper plane 
And it features bourbon, Aperol, and Amaro and was created in 2007 by bartender Sam Ross. He later started making it at the famous Milk and Honey Bar in New York City. Now, this cocktail is a spin on the classic cocktail, The Last Word, and features equal parts of those three ingredients that I mentioned. Um, (laughs) The cocktail is named after the MIA song, Paper Planes, which Sam Ross says he listened to while he was creating the drink. And now I love this cocktail even more because I've I love this song. It's literally 14 years old and I still listen to it when I'm running because I love it so much. Um, so if you don't know what the what this song is, along with the link to the cocktail, I'm going to put a link to that video for this song, Paper Planes, in the show notes in case you've never heard it. Okay, so here's what you're going to need for the Paper Plane cocktail. One ounce of bourbon whiskey, one ounce of Aperol, one ounce of Italian Amaro, um, and one ounce of fresh lemon juice. And if you want to garnish it, which it looks really cool with the garnish, you're going to need a lemon peel for garnish. So what you're going to do is add the bourbon, Aperol, Amaro, and lemon juice to a cocktail shaker, fill it with ice, and shake, 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 shake until cold, and then strain it into a cocktail glass, and then use that lemon peel as a garnish. All right, friends, that's all for this week. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. Also, please remember to share the podcast to help it reach a larger audience. If you want more Julie Brown, you can find my book, This Shit Works, on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. You can find me on LinkedIn at Julie Brown BD. Just let me know where you found me when you reach out. I'm Julie Brown underscore BD on the Instagram, or you can just pop on over to my website, juliebrownbd.com. Until next week, cheers, guys. Hey. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works.